I hope you had a great week. And I, I really think, you know, the celebration that we have around the table, um, what a privilege it is, you see, because when we come around the table, we remember, yes, his, uh, the Lord who came down, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We also think about the, uh, the fact that he is the one who's seated on the throne and that he's coming back again. And, and as we do that, our concerns, our challenges, our circumstances are so, um, you know, it's no more overwhelming. And, and, and the joy that we have when we think about Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do with this new sermon series from the uh, Gospel according to John uh, is to ask this question so that you may believe. What does that look like? What's belief look like? And, and what happens when we believe? The, uh, what we want to do today is just the first part, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, what's called the prologue, and the title I want to give it is, is Jesus, Your Reason. Uh, the, the book of John is a very unique book, and so we will be spending, I think, a couple of months at least as we go through it, but, um, but I, I pray that as we do that, we are able to see the wonderful person that our Lord Jesus Christ is and that our faith, our belief would become real. And before I do that, let me just pray and then we'll start. Father God, we want to thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your son, Lord. We, we are so thankful that you would give us him. We have no other means of life. We have no other reason or purpose but our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we spend time in this book, that you would open our eyes and help us, Lord, to see our Lord Jesus Christ in, in a deeper, clearer, wonderful way. Help us, Lord, to learn together. Father, we pray that as, we, as I open God's word, Lord, may it not be me, but you, O God, will speak to the needs of each one of us. Lord, we are hungry for your word. We want to be fed. We want to be encouraged. We want to be comforted. We want to be strengthened. And all that only your son can do. And so we plead, O oh Lord, we plead that your son would be the one who would minister to us this afternoon. We thank you. Thank you for hearing our prayers in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. I do want to say that John's gospel is unique. There are many things that are unique about it, but I just want to give you two reasons why I feel it's unique and why it's relevant to us. First of all, it's not a historical narrative. It's a theological presentation. Uh, what I mean by that is Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, they're called what? What are they called? They're called the synoptic gospels. A synoptic gospel uh, means it has got a common view. All of them have a similar way of presentation. 93% of what is found in John is not found in the rest of the Gospels. And, and John has actually dropped some of the things which are found in other Gospels. And I was thinking about it, and it says, John, you know, you've got the, the mother of Jesus living with you. Remember, remember at the cross, uh, the Lord said, 
uh, woman, this is your son, and to John, he says, this is your mother, and on that day itself, uh, John took Mary to be uh, with him till she died. And I would have thought, you got those exclusive rights to find out about Jesus and his childhood days. Like, I'd like to know, like, what kind of a child was he? Did he get along well with his brothers and sisters? Did he do his laundry? You know, did he, did he have any favorite spots to hang out? I would think by the time where, you know, the, the, um, the Nazareth, when he came, he read the scroll that took him to the brow of the hill. I wonder if he went and spent time there, because when you stand on the brow of the hill, you can see an expanse of the land, and one of the things that you see is this battleground of Armageddon. So did he go there and, and think about what's going to happen? Like, I would like to know that, right? I mean, and John could have said, okay, let me tell you all these stories, this hypo um, not hypocritical, but apocryphal stories about you know how Jesus drew birds on the uh, with a chalk on the on the road and it came to life and John could have said no 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 all that didn't happen this is the practical way Jesus lived and that, he could have given us some practical insights but when when John says no I want to talk to you about Jesus what he says I'm going to I want to tell you about God who became man word became flesh and so that, that we must recognize that this person who knew Jesus intimately while he was on the earth, he was in part of those three disciples. When he writes a gospel, he wants us to know that this is God who became man. Second, very unique thing is there are at least 100 times the word believe is used or you know variations of that word believe is used in this gospel and each time it is used it's used as a verb not a noun it's not uh, speaking about faith or belief or whatever it is but it is about believe how do i believe how do i act how do i how do i actually believe our sermon series is taken from the objective, the, the purpose statement, as it were, from 2031, chapter 20, verse 31, which says, and these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in him. So it's about that believing. How does that word apply to us? John is interested. It's not about let's talk about belief, let's understand, you know, but no, really, do you believe? And it's important what we do with Jesus Christ. And John wants us to know exactly that, all right? So that is, that is why he writes this, this beautiful um, book, as it were. And, um, and, and so as we come to, um, to look at this passage, what we have called the prologue, you know, now let me let me say a few words about prologue. You see, a prologue is uh, it's a combination of two words. Pro is before, log is the word, uh, logos, as we will see very shortly. That's the word log. Prologue is before word. That means I want to give you a backstory, a context. John says uh, before I get into get into the main story. Before I tell you what I want to tell you, you need to know something. I can't start, John says, I can't just start with incarnation. I need to start before that. So that's what a prologue is all about. He wants us to be wowed by this person called Jesus Christ. 
I'm not sure whether you remember uh, this part of the movie Ben-Hur. And in that movie, um, Ben-Hur is now, along with those slaves, they're going to be taken into the ship to be the galley slave. And, and as they've been led there, they come to this well. And at the well, uh, the horses are, being, are given water, the soldiers are drinking, and, and the soldiers uh, allow for these women to give water to some of these slaves. But this chief soldier is very particular that Ben-Hur doesn't get any water. And, and as the woman tries to do, you know, he shoes her off. And so Ben-Hur, what he does is, is he is exhausted and he falls to the ground and says, God, save me. The camera doesn't pan that show us his face, but we know that as Jesus, as he is appearing and, and gives Ben-Hur the drink, the soldier is now upset. A soldier raises the whip, as it were, to try and whip, you know, uh, whip Jesus. But Jesus turns around. Again, this is very dramatically shown. Uh, this is all just a story, but it beautifully affirms what John is trying to say. As, John, uh, as Jesus turns to look at the soldier, the soldier is immobilized in awe. And he puts his whip down, turns away, and goes back. John is saying, if you need to know about Jesus Christ, if you want to know who Jesus is, unless he grips your heart, unless he is, fills your heart with awe, only he can fill your heart with awe. And if he doesn't, then there is something wrong because the greatest cause of awe is Jesus Christ. And so he begins, therefore, to tell us about, about this uh, person, uh, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ. He also reminds us that intimacy must not take away reverence. And that's another lesson for us. I love the fact in John chapter 13 where the Lord Jesus had just said, one of you is going to betray me. Peter is like motioning across the table. It's like, ask Jesus, ask Jesus who he is. And John is actually leaning on the bosom of Jesus. There's, that's an intimate time. And, and even though you can capture that intimacy, John turns and says, Lord, who is it? You see, intimacy did not take away his reverence. And, and I, 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 that's something that we need to remember for ourselves because we get so into this you know, doing this every time, remembering the Lord, we talk about the Lord, we read God's word, and sometimes the, the reverence erodes. We become a little apathetic, indifferent. We've lost the fervor. But John's saying, hey, I want to talk to you about somebody who's won my heart. That's what John does. And he presents a word called logos, right? And we heard this word logos. Now, uh, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but that's the word that is used. In the beginning was the word. The word, the word for word in Greek is logos, L-O-G-O-S. Logos, if you were to define it, is the expression of a person's mind, whether written or spoken. If a person wants to express what he is thinking, he speaks it, uh, or writes it, 
that would be Logos. And John says, this word, this Logos, is who I want to talk to you about. He is the expression of God. Now, the Jews understood uh, uh, this slightly differently, and the Greeks understood it differently too. But they knew what Logos meant. For the Jews, Logos was the means for accomplishing what God wants to do. All right, so in creation, what did he do? What did God do in creation? He spoke, right? And that's the expression. So they, they, they see that God speaks and it is done. In prophecy, when he gives a word, it says, thus says the Lord. So it's spoken. There's, in deliverance, there are verses that will show that through his word, he delivered the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel understood the, the moment the word, word is used or logos is used, that it is about a means through which God accomplishes his work. I'm not sure whether you asked yourself, why did, why did God have to speak uh, to create? He could have just said, God thought, and there was the heavens and the earth. Could God not have done that? What do you think? Yes. I mean, in fact, every aspect of that creation is beautiful because why did God have to take six days to create? Did he have to take six days? No. So there is a reason for that. And I want us to understand this one particular thing that God speaks because as you go through God's word, you will realize that it has always been the intention of God to reveal himself to mankind, express himself. And we see what John is trying to say that this creator, the one who spoke the word, is the one who has come to you now. He's the one I want to talk to you about. This word, this is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Right? So, so th this is, this is, uh, uh, the, the, the word for logos in Greek is, um, it's a very, uh, that's where we get the word logic and rational, but it's a very unemotional word. And John is saying, listen, this is not, this is not just, uh, you know, an abstract, I want to talk to you about a person. Aristotle, a few centuries ago, had introduced that in oratory or in drama, to convince somebody, you need three things. Ethos, pathos, and logos. So you have ethos. Ethos is from the word we get, uh, the word we get is ethics. It's about the integrity and the character of the person. So if the person, there's an orator that comes in, they would talk about his qualification. They would say, oh, he is a marine engineer, and so he's going to talk to us about marine life. And so there's that credibility that's given. That's ethos. Then you have pathos. Pathos is about emotion, the use of anger, love, and sadness, all of those contributing to this heart. It tugs the heart. Right, that's pathos, and you get uh, word, words like pathetic from pathos, or you know, there are other words that, that come which relate to emotions. But logos is about hard facts. 
It's about statistics. It's about historical narrative. There's no emotion. It is a hard fact. And, and the Greeks understood as they saw the world that there must be a reason for for this universe. They didn't think of it as God. They thought of it as some reason. And so they would call that the Logos, but a very indifferent, abstract Logos. I remember many years ago um, receiving a card at workplace, uh, and it said there, may the force be with you. And this was before I watched uh, Star Wars. I was looking at that, and I was like, what is this? May the force be with you. Well, that's what they believed. That's a very Greek understanding of who or what is the cause for the universe. And John is saying, hey, Jews, I want you to know that this, this logos, the word of God that, that, that did the creation, that, that, that um, was the word that came to you in Revelation, that is this logos. And not just that, you Greeks, I want you to know that, you know, this logic and rationale and all of that you think, I want you to know it's a person that you can know he's got ethos, integrity and credibility, and he's got pathos, he loves you. So it's, you know, it's like picking up a bestseller and how they always want to start with like the, um, like a shock value. That's exactly what that is. This is exactly what John does. And so Jesus is the logos of God, is the expression of God, but he's also the reason for man. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. That this Jesus, there is a reason, and the question I want to ask is, is he your reason? And what's your reason for life? What's your life uh, reason for purpose? Right? So... The prologue, verses 1 to verse 18, I want to see that in three parts. Three parts. The first part, from verses 1 to verse 9, I want to call it the, um, the um, what do I want to call it? The reason. I didn't bring my notes today, so I hope you'll forgive me uh, if I uh, misspeak. But verses 1 to 9 is reason. Okay, verses uh, 10 to 14 is the, um, is the reception as to how God would, uh, how we receive uh, this word. And then from verses uh, uh, 14b till 18, I want to call it the revelation, the revelation. So the three parts, we will see it in three parts. Uh, first, let's look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. And, um, you know, when you read right at the beginning as you look at it, you, you realize that John starts this book just like Genesis starts, right? In the beginning. And, and so John is trying to say, listen, that creator, the creator who did that is the one I'm going to talk to you about, but he has come now to create, as it were, a new spiritual being. And we read that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that those who are in Christ are a new creation, right? And so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is eternal, he is God, 
and yet he is distinct from God. This is a cl clear statement that, that, God, that John gives about Jesus Christ, that this word is God, and he was with God. The uh, uh, verse 2, as we look there, he says he was in the beginning with God. I want us to recognize that this is not just proximity with God, but this is personal relationship with God. That this, uh, we read, uh, another thing that happens in prologue is that whatever is condensed in here is kind of detailed out. So the fact that this, this personal relationship with God of, of the word logos, we will see that in chapter 17. Right, The glory that I had with you, the love that I had with you, the intimacy that I had with you. He explains that. Okay, And then in verse 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The one who has come down, he's the one who is the creator of all things. There's a, another interesting uh, comparison, if you would, with Genesis 1 and John 1. In Genesis 1, you will see that it was on the third day that you will find some life form being created. Grass and plants are on the third day. And we who are compared to grass can see that on the third, because of the third day, the resurrection of this, of this person called Jesus of Nazareth, that we have a new life. We made a new creation. So, so... This is the creator who has come, and, uh, and John speaks about him. In verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. We, 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 uh, in the previous service, we looked at Psalm 36, and in verse 9, it says that with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. And when Jews would read this, they would say, wait a minute, what is John trying to say? That You're trying to say that that Lord Jehovah is the same one being mentioned here, that in him was life, and the life was the light of, light of men. And John is saying, yes, I'm speaking about the great I am. Because how many times does he refer to, uh, how many references does he give about the I am of Jesus in the book of John? Seven times. Seven times Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the resurrection, I'm the way. You see, John is making this intentional connection. Verse 5. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I want you to notice here that it's a, it's, it's a switch to the present tense. And what it's saying is, this light has come, but darkness could not overwhelm it. And it's in the present tense. I, I'm, just, I, I'm so thankful when I read that. It's not something that happened in distant past, but even today, sometimes when you lie on a bed and we sing, the world seems to be coming down on me and the darkness is engulfing me, I am reminded of this words that, that darkness could not comprehend light. It could not overtake light. It could not overwhelm light. Light rules. That's the word that we have in verse 5. Then in verse 6 to 8, we see the introduction of John the Baptist. 
God's witness of the truth about this truth um, is John, John the Baptist. And John is writing about a herald. When a king comes into a city, into a village, into a town, they would send a herald out and to say, the king is coming. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. John the Baptist is heralding about the coming of this person. And um, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And verse 10, and, and uh, um, he, uh, it says here that what you're going to do, verse, as you look at verse 10, you'll say what you will do with this light is important. This light affects everybody. And this light has come. There is a, as he goes on further, as we look at verses 10 to verse 14, he introduces this idea of light and the acceptance of this light and the rejection of this light. So verses 10 to 14. I want to call this the reception. What did we do with this word who came? Who is the light? In whom is the life? Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, did not recognize him. The creation did not recognize the creator. The, it's characteristic of the world, isn't it? I mean, the world doesn't really have uh, an acceptance, but it's an indifference to the world. And in verse 11, it says, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Not just that we didn't recognize him, the creation did not recognize him, but his own did not receive him. And, um, and as we think about that, here is the creator who comes to his creation, but he's not accepted. Now this is a story, but I thought it'll really help us. It's called The Visited Planet. The story goes as a, as a senior angel is taking this junior angel on the orientation of the universe. And as they go around, they, they see this dirty tennis ball, as it were, in the far out distance. And uh, the, the younger angel, I mean, there's no younger or older, but uh, stay with me on this, but he looks at that tennis ball and says, ew, like, what is that planet? What is that? in this universe, and, and this angel says, that's the visited planet. And, and then he goes on to speak about the redemption story of the visited planet. Now think about it, right? I mean, that's that one spot in the whole of universe that it stood in rebellion against God. The ones who were made in the image of God now invited to come, now, now that to that planet is where Jesus Christ comes. The Logos, the Word. We didn't recognize him. We didn't receive him. But verse 12, to all that who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God, or the children of God, the children of God. He gave the right to become the children of God. It's, there, is a, there is one distinction I, wanted, I want us to make here. Received what are we talking about? Are we received, received what? Re or received who? 
Who is this? Jesus Christ, right? It's not received salvation. It is not the gift that we have received. And here, John wants to make this distinction, saying that what you receive is the giver, not the gift. It happens sometimes, you know, I mean, notice when, when we bring to our kids um, gifts, especially during Christmas. We got so many gifts and the kids are more, most excited about wanting to know what the gift is all about. They're you know, tearing at the gift wrapping and they want to know what's inside and then you have to remind them, go say thank you to Nana or whatever, right? And, and, and so what has really happened is they're more caught up on the gift than the giver and John is reminding us here that to, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave you the right to become the children of God. We will elaborate that a little more as we go uh, in, the, in the next few weeks about what, what does that really look like about belief, okay? But verse 13 goes on to say that we were not born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, that this is a God thing, that God is the one. It's not based on personal effort. It is not based on favor, personal, like we've worked for it, but it is God who causes us to, uh, to for us to have. And then in verse 14, uh, causes us to be the children of God. And then verse 14, we see the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the first time we see that um, he dwelt among us and we've seen his glory uh, as the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Logos now is identified as the Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came. And from here on, the word that is used is Jesus of Nazareth. As we saw in that short clip, uh, where it says, and he came and dwelt among us, is the word of tabernacled among us, the idea where in Exodus we read of how the tabernacle was uh, set up and how God dwelt among them. This is the same idea. This word became flesh and dwelt among us. The second person of Trinity now come in human flesh. There was a gentleman called Herbert Spencer. He's the one who popularized uh, um, uh, not atheism, but uh, popularized um, uh, agnostic agnosticism. <laughs> okay. Uh, thing is, we, we can't really get to know who God is. You know, that was his statement. And Hubbard Spencer, I mean, he, he, he identified a lot of things which, which is true of the Bible. He's the one who said there are five things that are required in Genesis chapter, uh, five things that are required for creation, and those five things appear in Genesis 1.1. And he was an agnostic. And this is what he wrote. He said, I've never seen a bird fly out of space. That is, you know, the bird is going and poof is gone out of space. I mean, the finite can never leave and go into the infinite. And likewise, the infinite cannot come into the finite. That was his observation. But his conclusion was wrong because here John is, <coughs> John is saying that no, we do have the infinite, the Lord Jesus Christ who has come as man. So, 
In the first portion, we see Jesus as the first cause. What I mean by the first cause, verses 1 to 9, is that he is the one who is responsible for anything and everything, including you and I. If it weren't for him, you couldn't be there, I couldn't be there. He's the cause, the first cause. But here, John is saying not just that, he's the fundamental cause. So what, what that means is you need him. You can't do without him, you see, because you, you, you have an option. You might just say, I will receive him or not receive him. You, you might reject him, but no, he's the one who's fundamental to who you are. He's essential to you. All right. And let me, let me read this um, uh, quote that I have here. J. Sidlow Baxter, who wrote this, it says, Jesus is the gospel. Fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I'm the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I'm the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I'm the door. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And John is presenting to us that this word is fundamental to us, essential to us. So let's look at the next part from 14b down till 18. I want to call that the revelation, the revelation, because Jesus reveals God to us. And, and here he is the final cause. You want any future? It has to be through Jesus. He is the one who reveals God. And we will see as we go through this book that unless you know God, you cannot know yourself. Everybody wants to know themselves. If you want to know yourself, then you need to know God first. And so in verse uh, 14 and 15, we, we see that, um, that there are uh, again, he brings about John. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said. And John is presenting himself as the witness. John, the book of John, you will see seven witnesses, seven times, seven different people are talking about Jesus Christ as the true, as the witness um, that he receives of his integrity, of his grace, of his truth. And so this is the first one that we have here. And, and, and then as you get to verse 16, for from his fullness we all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace upon grace. Now, what does that mean? It's important for us to just pause long enough to get uh, to understand that really well. There are, it's a little, uh, there are three different understandings for what that means. The first is, I want to call it the replacement. What that means is, this grace that has come through Jesus replaced the grace that came through Moses when he brought the law. The grace of Jesus Christ replacing the grace through Moses, uh, that's the first way of looking at it, because then verse 17 seems to speak about it. But then there is also another way of looking at it, and I want to call that the correspondence, as in the grace that Jesus received from the Father is the grace that he gives us. 
we, we, we can't really find that as you go through the rest of the Bible, but I believe this is the truer understanding, and I want to call it the ac accumulation. That is, in Jesus Christ, we have found waves, we have abundance, we have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, who among his children have ever found his grace not to be sufficient. In the worst of times, in the best of times, his grace is sufficient. And that's the joy. When our eyes don't seem to catch or glimpse that, we need to know that his grace is sufficient. And then in verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, the prologue ends with as of a celebration. God can now be known. God can now be known. Listen to this. Jesus, who is the reason for everything, he was not recognized by the creator. He was rejected by his own, but yet he takes residence among us, and he is the one who reveals God to us, Jesus. But the question remains, this is the question. The question remains, what are we going to do with Jesus? What, what, what are we going to do with this person called reason? You see, I, I, I want to draw that when we talk about reason, then there are two possibilities. One is your reasoning, and the other as God's reason, who is Jesus Christ. Which trumps, which is, which is greater? In your practical living, I'm not talking about in your, in your head belief, but in your heart belief, there's a difference. How do we live it out? Josh McDowell, he speaks about this incident that he had with a, uh, where he had this discussion with a 16-year-old girl, and then he asked her, do you believe that premarital sex is wrong? And she says, yes, it is wrong for me. So he asked again, do you believe that the Bible says premarital sex is wrong? And she repeated again, saying that I think it is wrong for me, but I'm not going to judge others what they want to decide as truth. And so Josh McDowell goes on to explain, he's saying, you see, what is happening is we are trying to reason truth. If I can reason our truth, if it fits my mindset. If I can understand that, yeah, that can be true, then it becomes true to me. It's not about testing truth. You see, you want to test truth, you want to make sure that is true, but if you want to be the standard by which you're going to decide what is true and what is not true, then you have become the reason. Then truth cannot be the absolute truth. It's relative to who what you have arrived at, and John wants to say, listen, there is only one truth. And Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You either take me as truth, there are things that you may not understand about me, but that's all right, I'm the truth. You get to know me. You get to know the truth. But don't Stand in opposition that your reasoning is what's going to evaluate what absolute truth is all about. We were last Wednesday at uh, the Chartwell Senior Home. 
like I know some of us were there, our hearts broke. There was this eight-year-old lady who she, she, she confesses to be a Christian. And she says, I've lived 80 years old. I've seen life. I've gone through much. And I have come to my own conclusion, my own philosophy, that, uh, that if you do, you know, if you help people and do good, that's what God's going to judge you by. What, what's happened there is that she has arrived at her own reasoning as to what truth ought to be truth. It breaks your heart that after all those years, she's come to that conclusion. And it, this might look apparent. This might look like, oh, I know I would never say that, but do we actually act it? That's what the question I would like to ask all of us. Is Jesus really a reason? Or would you say, you know, I mean, those, some of us would say this, right? I mean, we, 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 we say, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to forgive. I'm, I'm not going to forgive this person anymore because I think I've forgiven that person enough. If I forgive anymore, I'll be enabling that person. Right? That's my reason as opposed to what God has said. Or I might say, you know, God understands my weakness. You know, I'm trying, I'm trying, but I'm weak. And so, you know, God understands that I'm, you know, I'm still in my sin. And, and he'll, he'll just show his grace. That is not grace. Every time grace is mentioned in the Bible, listen to this. Every time grace is mentioned in the Bible, the consequence of rejection comes alongside. And there is therefore an understanding that grace must not be, must not be abused. How, how do we live our life? How do we say, I know this to be true. I've heard people say, that's, that, that's unfortunate. I say, I know this is what the Bible is saying, but practically we cannot live that. How, how can we stand to judge and be the judge of what can be done and cannot be done if we either believe Jesus to be the reason, he becomes the one who we obey? We can't. Stand to reason against Jesus. And John, having known this person intimately, he, he even, in, even in his episode, he begins with, in the beginning, like he wants to tell you that this is God and what he says is true. What he has said will come true. Many times, you know, we, one of the other reasons that we say, seeing is believing, right? And we, wanna, we want to, Lord, I know I'm praying. I'm, 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 I'm worrying, Lord, because that's the way I plan. You know, that's the way I, I think through. I can't just give up. I, I, I just, I have to do my part. And, and God says, cast your fears, cast your concerns on me. I'll care, I'll care for you. I'll care for you. So the, the call to us is just this, saying that are we living as practical atheists? Are we living as practical agnostics, as ones who know in our head but we do differently in our heart. And John is calling us to say that cannot be too different. That he alone is the truth. He alone is a reason. So allow me to leave this with you. One thing that you can do this week. Go home and make a list of excuses and opinions and, and uh, things that you have said for yourself which, which stands contrary to God's word. Those are the idols that need to be broken down because it's coming in the way of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, 
and the life. Father God, we pray that you would give us the strength, oh Lord. You would give us, Father, the, the courage to say that your son is true and what he says is true for us in our life and all that we say and do, that he would be glorified. Cause us, O oh Father, as your church here in Mississauga, that you have kept us here. Father, that we would be ones who would be insistent that God be glorified in our lives through our actions, through our thoughts, through our words and everything that we do. Oh, Father, we want to be more like your son each passing day. So we thank you, Father, that this word, God who created the universe, you would take on flesh and dwell among us so that we can dwell with him for eternity. We thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for such love that has overwhelmed us so that there's nothing else in this world that would overwhelm us anymore. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, and all God's people said, Amen.